God is in the business of changing lives. And the good news is he's not done with us yet. And I'm glad that he's not done with me yet as well. And he won't be done with us until we enter eternity, till we go home to be with him. But here's where I want to challenge you and maybe even invite you to something. I am looking for about five people that are willing to give thanks of how God has been working in their lives. And this is geared toward that Thanksgiving Eve service. And um, I have one already that's uh, volunteered as well, but we have about six people share. There's no sermon, it's just music and, and giving testimony to God's faithfulness and his goodness. And if God might be using even this invitation to uh, maybe prompt you a bit, would you consider sharing what God is doing in your lives? And uh, would love to talk to you after the service and uh, see if, if something would work out here as well. We're in this series, The Generosity of God, and this idea that God is so abundantly generous, and he loves us so much. But let me ask a question. As you think back to this week, was there ever a moment when you just said, oh, I know God loves me? It could have been during a hard time, during a good time, but there's this place where you, in one sense, just sense that God is good that he is a benevolent father. You know, last week we looked at this idea of his benevolence and even giving us his son, and as the son extended generosity to a man named Zacchaeus. And if you don't remember that man, that Zacchaeus was a man who was really a broken man. He was kind of the scourge of the earth. He was a tax collector. And Jesus, in his generosity, comes alongside of him. He goes to his home, and this man met Jesus, and his destiny for eternity was changed forever. We have a generous God. But maybe the question needs to be put this way. What keeps us from also moving toward generosity in our own lives? What is it that's blocking us? What is it that keeps us from demonstrating what Jesus demonstrated? That's a key question there for your notes. What keeps us from developing hearts of generosity? You know, I I think there's a number of obstacles One of them is the obvious one. We talked about it a couple weeks ago, the issue of money. We looked at the rich young ruler and how he was blocked because he loved his stuff so much. And Jesus made the point here, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, here's what I also believe is that in people being trapped with money, I don't believe that that's the norm when it comes to followers of Jesus that really follow Jesus. I, I don't think that they're trapped in the love of money per se. See, I think there's really, there's probably more than one, but I think there's another critical issue that at times blocks us from having hearts of generosity. Let me unpack this, and let me give you the answer to that to fill in that blank here for you. It's these types of words. Fear, anxiety, doubt, put worry in there. Those words at times cripple us from our effectiveness of what God wants. 
See, those emotions keep us, I believe this, from even being generous. And those words intersect with our time, our money, our possessions, our relationships. So here's where we need to unpack some things today. If you've got your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 12. And it, there's a chapter here that deals with these, these emotions. It kind of, it's four times in this, in this one chapter, deals with these things. And it intersects really quite profoundly with our ability to be generous. Now, the context is in the first one here, verse 4, he's warning his disciples. And you see the first emotion come through here. Look at how it reads in verse 4. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. Why, even the hairs of your head are numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. Don't fear people who kill you. And you go, what? It's kind of strange. But do you notice there the counterweight to fear? It's knowing and embracing that we are valued By God. See, he values us so much that it says that the number of hairs on our head are actually numbered and he knows it. And for some of us, Dave, you and I, he knows exactly the number of hairs on our head. Some of you got a lot more hair on your head. And he knows it. Now, here's what we also must realize. Those emotions, fear, doubt, understand where they come from. It comes from the very Garden of Eden itself. When Adam and Eve turned and they walked away and they became autonomous creatures, and all of a sudden, though, they hear God walking in the garden, and if you remember, the reaction was they were afraid. Fear comes into being. And fear is one of these things, and anxiety and worry are one of these things now that have been passed on from generation to generation, and it's infused at times into who we we really are. And Luke is helping us deal with some of these emotions. Don't fear those who can kill the body once you're dead. I value, God says, I'm important. But let's jump to verse 11. Let me pick up this theme even more. Look at 11. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Now, there's a little bit of cryptic here going on in that that Jesus knows knows that the disciples are going to hit some really hard stretches here coming up. People are going to be against them. But this is also applying to us as well. You know, we live in a world where people are against us. The world is not smooth all the time. There's going to be antagonists out there. And I, you know, I think it's going to get even worse for those that follow Christ. But this command, do not be anxious 
And the counterweight here is, is that he tells them that the Holy Spirit is with you to help. But here's the deal. The flesh wants us to draw away from the Holy Spirit and from Jesus. And, and we start doubting and we go, well, what if the Holy Spirit doesn't show up? What if the Holy Spirit's on vacation? Maybe the Holy Spirit's having a latte at Caribou instead. But do you already catch in the pattern that's going on in this chapter? Fear, anxiety, worry. But God is good, and he's for us. And the Holy Spirit, he's been given to us. But let's keep going. Look at jump to verse 16. Jesus was given a question and responds with a parable of the rich fool. Look how it goes in verse 16. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest, and he thought to himself, what shall I do for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. Now, if you ask the question, why did he build bigger barns? Was it the love of his crops and his stuff? And the answer is actually no. He built bigger barns because he believed that he was in control of his destiny, his future. He knew that he needed enough stuff so he could relax, stay away from fear and anxiety. If I just have enough stuff and crops, I'm set. I don't have to be anxious about the future. Now, one hidden piece in this text here is you'll notice he didn't give any of it away. He was unwilling. He's actually quite stingy. Why? I need to have a secure future so I can relax, store up more, get rid of the anxiety, the potential anxiety that's ahead. Let me give you an application out of this for this morning. Number one in your notes there, if you're following along in the outline, we yearn for a certain future, a security, a type of security as we live our lives in this world. See, people believe this. If I can make sure that I'm secure, if I have all my ducks in a row, I'm good to go. See, we believe that we can plan life out And then we can push back uncertainty and life is going to be smooth for me. And all of a sudden we start nibbling, chewing on a little fear and thinking about the future. And and it comes back into our lives and then we, we start, man, do I have enough in my freezer Do I have enough in my bank account just in case something might happen? How about my retirement account? You know, I'm getting up there in age. 
we fear looking ahead to the future. But do you realize this also seeps into our relationships as well? It impacts the way we fear, even you think of the future of our kids. And you go, what's driving that uncertainty? It's fear, anxiety, doubt, but it's this, forgetting that God is good. We hate it when life is uncertain, when we aren't sure about the future. And that's true when it comes to our money, our families, our marriage, our children. And do you realize even, for example, that today young people are putting marriage off and choosing cohabitation out of fear. Let me read a quote for you from the New Yorker. One reason for this increased interest in cohabitation over marriage may not be the fear of the union itself, of marriage itself, so much as the concern for the possibility of its collapse. In other words, it may be the looming prospect of divorce that's driving more people to choose the question, will you move in with me over will you marry me? Fear, even in relationships. But look at the rest of the parable, verse 20. But God said to him, fool, fool. This night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up for treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. See, people are consumed with earthly security, and God calls it foolish. A person is a fool when that takes place. Folks, this isn't a gentle Jesus here. This is a bit of rebuke to the crowd. And Jesus doesn't tone it down. And it says if we're consumed on this earthly security of having enough and having all our ducks in a row, we will actually understand the opposite. We'll refuse to ever even become generous toward the things of God. Look how Peterson wrote it in the message. Just then God showed up in verse 20. And said, fool, tonight you die and your barn full of goods, who gets it? That's what happens when you fill your barn with self and not with God. See, the barn ultimately and storing up and having that security is about us. Let me give you the application for your notes. Number two, the deep quest to, secure, to a guaranteed future security is actually rooted in selfishness. Selfishness. Now, I need to say something that might surprise some of you. Uh, at a conference a couple years ago, it, it was on the theology of work and finances, and it came into play there. And the guy was inter- really spot on, I believe, really a great speaker, had some meaty stuff, but he pointed out this issue that oftentimes financial Christian guru guys, the guys that are speaking toward finances, are dangerously close to having finances as an idol. Now, what do I mean by that? Um, I've been to Africa before, and when they look at our spending, the amount of stuff that we spend, they would just kind of go, Really? You need all that stuff? 
And that's where we get into trouble and we get into debt. But on the flip side of of it, when we look at trying to secure a financial future and have everything in a row, they would look at that and go, they would tell us this, you don't trust God, do you? That's how they would respond to us. See, if we're so consumed with planning, we have to admit that that's actually rooted in fear and selfishness. But Jesus keeps pouring it on. Look at the next section of Scripture, verse 22. We come to a place that shows actually that the enemy of generousness is worry and fear. Look at verse 22 here. And he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, Do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens, and they neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. How much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan, the span of life? You can preach a whole sermon on that one. Verse 26, if then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow and they neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? Now, here's how some people take this and try to apply it this way. Well, let's just, I'm going to sit under a tree and I'm going to smile and I'm going to wait till God provides food for me. Don't worry. Be happy. Don't worry. Be happy. See, is this just a cliche? Don't sweat the details. You know what? Don't worry about paying the bills. Don't worry. Be happy. Don't go to work tomorrow. Don't worry. Be happy. Wait for food, the manna that comes down from heaven. Now, this passage is not saying do nothing. That's not the meaning of the text. See, the Bible is filled with the issue of responsibility, even working hard. Husbands are called to provide for their families and that work itself was created by God, and it's to be a blessing. Matter of fact, there's hundreds of verses actually on slothfulness, on laziness. But understand that this chapter functionally is about faith and trusting God, that he is good and that he's generous toward us. And it's deeply connected then to our ability to also give and be generous. But let me give you another application here. Strictly, it comes right out of the text. Do not be anxious about your life. And you have to say this, in every area. It's directly from verse 22. So this is about putting away fear, anxiety about worry. Why? Because we have a good God. See, do we believe that? 
or do we keep doubting and forgetting that truth? But look at the core. Look at verse 29 here. Let me put that on the screen. And it says this, And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. Now the key in this, and it really is at the core of the meaning of this, is the word seek there. Do not seek. It's a, it's a rather intense word. The NIV actually translates it like this. Don't set your hearts on. See, you, you feel the passion with that. It's a good translation. There's just nothing casual about that word. It's just not kind of meandering. It's do not crave. Do not demand. Now, and again, this is wider than just food and drink. It's looking ahead to the future and fretting in a whole bunch of areas where we become distraught by not knowing the future in all kinds of ways. Money, health, relationships, children, retirement. Do not seek See, it implies that there is some kind of a tipping point where we can go down a wrong path. Well, let me put a statement on the screen just so you understand that. Let me push it here. The soul moves down a path of demanding that I have bountiful margin in my finances, my time, my possessions, my relationships, believing that it will eliminate anxiety and fear. All in the name of holding back those that fear anxiety. I've got to have enough margin in my world. We, we crave this ideal. And we believe that it'll give us a sense of security for the future. But understand this, it's based on believing that we can control it. And that I can make my life smooth. I must create a smooth path in life. We like smooth. Actually, it's probably stronger. We love smooth. We don't like a rocky life. That's complicated. But notice what Jesus tells us here in that attitude, that that's actually what the world's attitude, that's what they seek after. Verse 30 there, for all the nations of the world seek after these things. A smooth life. I know where everything is. All the ducks are in a row. Demanding a kind of security. We want to know where, do we have enough food in the pantry so that six months from now, if something happens, I'm going to have enough food to put on my table? You know, the world believes that, one, if I just can obtain the right things, I will be secure and happy. And the second, if we have just the right circumstances in my life, then security. Bingo, I can be happy. But the world, understand, has no clue what is truly satisfying. And I think many followers of Christ are rowing in that same boat. See, at times we as Christians demand that something be 100% secure. And we think that we can figure out to make life smooth and to push back the fear, the anxiety. And to understand, if we believe this, listen to this, one will never become and have a spirit of generosity with money, 
with time, with relationships. Now, did you notice that when he told the disciples in the illustration, the counterweight to push back fear is actually in verse 28. Look at this. But if God so clothes the grass which is alive in the field today, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? Look at the grass, the leaves. They're green for a couple months, and now they're on the compost pile. Why? Because God is even in control of nature itself. It's part of the cycle of life for nature. And he's in charge. So disciples, why do you keep doubting me? See, doubting is actually a form of, do we, do we recognize it's actually doubting God? See, Jesus is saying that my father has it in his hands and he is in control. Uh, let me apply this. Put some statements on the screen for application with this issue of even security and even generosity. See, if you crave certainty in your bank account before you give, you never will give from a spirit of generosity. You can give. But if you gotta be, everything's got to be certain, that's not a heart of generosity. Another one. If you always have to know how much time something is going to take, will it fit into my order, my schedule? You will never have and be generous in the area of time. A third one, if you crave certainty that a relationship will be rewarding, worthwhile, if that's what you crave and are seeking, you will never be generous in relationships. Because there's no certainty in that. Let me give you the last one. If you crave the certainty of never getting emotionally hurt by people, you will never be generous with forgiveness. Do you catch where Jesus is going in this chapter? He's want the disciples to make a 180 degree pivot. But let me try to illustrate this a little bit more. That we want the feeling of security. And, and you understand, most of the time what we're doing, it's security in the self. We can figure it out. And, and we create an area in our lives where we want to stand on this and just to push back the fear and anxiety. That's where we want to go. And God says, nope. What does he say? Look at verse 31. Instead of this, seek his kingdom and these things are going to be added to you. So here's the kingdom of God. And this other area of our lives where he says, Ken, seek this. Don't worry about this. Just seek and stay here within the kingdom. But here's what we do. Now, I recognize one thing. I look at my own life and I go, okay, sometimes I might be here. Sometimes I might be here. 
And I think we need to recognize it and admit that. But here's what I think that we would like to be able to do. We want to go, let's go one foot here. So I, I'm going to negotiate. I'm going to just make my own life work so I feel secure. And we want to try to do it in the kingdom at the same time. And Jesus is going, won't work. Doesn't happen. See, we think that we can do both. We can allow fear to rule with our time, money, finances, relationships, and we, be, we can be committed to the kingdom. And Jesus is going, won't work that way. It's an either or here. Look how Jesus goes on. Look at verse 32. A kingdom mindset. Verse 32, fear not, little flock, for it is God's good pleasure, there's the generosity of God, to give you the kingdom. But it's implying as you seek it, he wants us to have satisfaction of being in this place, just giving ourselves to God. And he gives us fruit in that. He says, stay here. But then look at the challenge of doing this. Look at verse 33. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do, much, uh, uh, that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. Now, here's where people are going, okay, does this mean that i got to sell everything? Uh, no, I don't think so. I, I believe what... He's making an overstatement here to drive home a point. And that money and the stuff really isn't the real issue. The real issue is about trust. It's about faith and who is in control. That's the issue. But it's about which area do we camp in? Is it the security doing it in our own way? Or do we say, God, I'm going to open my hands and I'm going to continue to pursue you and the kingdom of God. And it says that the things we need, he'll give them to you as we seek you first the kingdom. But this is walking by faith, keeping our feet planted within the kingdom of heaven. But let me just try to get it even more practical. I, I think you've funneled down this whole chapter There's a disease that can rule our lives. And in your notes, I said it this way, the disease, it's the what-if disease. And it's the default of the flesh, I recognize that, but it is also a tool of Satan. See, if I give and I don't have enough for retirement, what if my future? What if I don't have enough for my kids' college tuition? How about this one? What if I forgive this person, but what if they turn around and do it again? What if is oozing within fear, anxiety, worry? And folks, it blocks generosity. It blocks grace. It blocks forgiveness. I've worked with too many affairs in marriages, and the what-if disease is so prevalent there. What if the other person, if I forgive them, what if? 
But, but here's the deal. I think even collectively within a church, we also can get trapped into the what-if disease. Now, I have to be honest with myself, and my kids know me pretty well, and I go, I, I think a lot of times they would look at me and go, Dad, you got the disease. But here's what we try to do. We try to cover it up by using the word wisdom. Um, yeah, but, you know, in the name of wisdom, I don't think that. You know, when, when my son, you know, he, is, he had been in a church for, churches for about 15 years doing uh, youth ministry and college ministry. And when he stepped out and he became a missionary at that point, I, I'll tell you this, you know what was going through my mind? I had the disease of what if. What if he doesn't raise enough support? What if my grandkids end, out on, end up on the street? What if it doesn't work out? Then what? You see how this isn't just a money thing? And we can couch it in wisdom. And what it's doing, it's just because it's fear of taking the next step, a step of faith. See, I I think one of the things we need to do is allow the Holy Spirit to really search our hearts and go, am I trapped in the what if with my finances, my time, people, my talents? What if? Even in a building project, what if we can't pay the mortgage? See, I, I think the disease can set in there. You know, this is my fifth building project now, I, I need to say something, may raise some eyebrows, but, but people, even at times, I think it's because of the what if, they tend to go, you know, you're not supposed to borrow money as a church. And, and they, people claim that it's rooted in a biblical concept, and I go, it's not true. I'll debate it with you pretty heartedly at, at that. See, Jesus never condemned borrowing. Matter of fact, there's all kinds of instances where they actually talk about lending laws and all of the things that go into place in the Old Testament. Jesus never condemned the banking system, and he said borrowing is not wrong. Matter of fact, you would never go to your neighbor. If that was true, you would never go to your neighbor and borrow, borrow their chainsaw because you were indebted to them. And you go, No. I want, we need to actually borrow to our neighbors to love them. But do we throw away wisdom? The answer is no. But at times this, God needs to be able to overrule any earthly wisdom that we have. Especially when it comes to the kingdom of God. Do you know that earthly wisdom would say to Moses, you never should have taken those six million people out of Egypt and walked up to the Red Sea. You should have brokered a better deal with the leaders in that country to get some relief. More plagues so you get some more relief. But in order to walk away, uh uh-uh. Wisdom would say no. See, earthly wisdom can compel people to have no faith whatsoever in the name of security. But catch this. 
the most compelling truth is really in this last verse. See, now if you take a Bible in interpretation class, oftentimes you'll look to the last sentences, the last kind of the end of the sentences. A lot of times there's a punchline that really kind of reveals the meaning of the interpretation. Look at verse 34. Here's the punchline. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So if fear is ruling you, the need for security is shouting at you to come and join him. And if the energy given to that box that says security, smooth, it reveals where our treasure is at. And it reveals what are the passions of our heart. Is it our bank account and a smooth life? That's where our heart is at. See, even generosity and forgiveness, security says this, don't forgive, don't give grace, never give that relationship a second chance. See, security invites us to be tight-fisted in the areas of our lives, and it locks out generosity. But let me end with this illustration. Do you know where the heart is? will ultimately be revealed at one's funeral. At her funeral. You know, I've just, having done a number of funerals over the years, it's interesting what people say at the end of one's life. You know, and for some, I've done some who don't know Christ as well. But there are people who... Well, I'll say it this way. At funerals, a lot of times they give the benefit of the doubt. When they, somebody stands up and talks, or kids stand up and talk. And, and some of those people are genuine, they're decent, they're caring people. But there are some funerals that I've done that I would call this, they are kingdom funerals. And these people have been planted in this box in the kingdom of God. And you feel the difference at that funeral. And it's stuff like this. At the wake, they come up to the family and say, your mom, she gave herself to me. She was so generous. You don't know the hours that she spent mentoring me. You know, I remember your dad When I was down and out, he gave me a hand. He helped me financially. Or you know what? Because of your dad, I never, if if it wasn't for your dad, I never would have met Jesus. See, the legacy is firmly planted here in the kingdom of heaven. And and understand this, it's more than just what the immediate family says. You know, there's a a lady down at, at Lakewood in Baxter church was at before. Uh, She came to the church shortly after I arrived and I went on staff at the church. And her name is Betty. And the legacy for Betty will be woman after woman after woman will be coming up to that family and say this, Betty was my spiritual mother. Matter of fact, Someday if I get to be at that line, I will tell their kids, Betty was my spiritual mother as well, more than my mom. There was, she loved me, but she was a spiritual mom to me while I was on staff there. 
Betty didn't have a lot of money, but you talk about generous in her time, unbelievable. Kingdom stuff. She led the Bible study at her retirement home, but she mentored woman after woman. I would counsel ladies at times, and I can tell you how many times that I would be calling up Betty and say, Betty, here's a telephone number. Could you have a cup of coffee with her? And she'll go, I'd love to. And she would. She was, she's just planted here in the kingdom of God. And that's her legacy. That is, will be her legacy. A spirit of generosity. It wasn't about money. It was about her whole life. It was about Jesus and loving Jesus. And I just want to meet people and help them love Jesus. The question for us, are we more and more moving toward this box and the kingdom of God? But it takes the ability to go, God, you are good, and I trust you in that. I don't even know how to talk to some of these people, but God, you're gonna, the Holy Spirit will give me the words. It's interesting how he says that, didn't it? Which box are we in? Are we doing the, like, at times I feel like more and more I got a God, you're calling me to this. And he's just wanting, Ken, trust me. Don't worry about earthly security. All these things I will give you when you need them. Trust me. Let's stand and pray.